0: The cat's meow is when you have kick-ass product, a big market, and then you pair that with exceptional execution. That's when you can just run the tables and have a really beautiful outcome.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit. A show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go to market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world class teams. Before we jump in with our amazing guest today, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Loom. If you haven't heard of Loom, you should definitely check them out. They're bringing video messaging to work. Using Loom is like sending a text instead of making a phone call, but you're using video. You don't need to schedule anything or coordinate with anyone. Just record, hit stop, and a link to your video message is instantly ready to share. Turns out, it's really good for sales. Our portfolio companies use Loom when they're doing outreach, and sending a demo video is just so much more engaging than an email. It's super fast, fun, and the best part, it's free. Sign up today at loom.com. And now, on to this episode. Carlos, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm going to read you your background, and I want you to fill in the gaps for me on what I miss, okay? Okay, great. So you got your BA at the University of Miami, and then MBA at Troy University. Then you became an AE at Beckman Coulter for four years, AVP of Sales at Parametric Technology for another four years or so, did a short stint at Ambion as a VP, then Area Director at Oblix for about three years, which was acquired by Oracle about two years after you left. And then an area director at I Am Logic for three years. And you left in 2006, it looks like kind of at the time of acquisition by Symantec. And then you went to become the AVP of the East for two years at Blade Logic, which was acquired by BMC, then AVP at BMC for approximately three years Then went on to be the SVP of Worldwide Sales at Dynamic Ops for two years, which was subsequently acquired by VMware while you were there. And this all happened in New York City, I might add. Then you moved to San Francisco, became the SVP of sales at ClearSlide for two years, and then CRO of MongoDB for four years, which was actually a New York City-based company. And presumably, you're still in SF during this time, right? That's right. And then you saw through... The IPO happened about three years into your tenure there. So you spent four years there, three years in, IPO'd. You went on to be the CEO of Vera Security for about a year and a half. And now, starting in January of 2020, call it five months ago, you started as the CRO of TripActions. Did I get that right?
0: Mostly right. Yeah, mostly right. A couple little things. You mentioned parametric technology, which was a great experience. I learned so much while I was there. I was ADP when I left, but I actually joined as a sales rep, and uh, that was a pretty pivotal period in my career. I joined as a sales rep, and a year later, they offered me an opportunity to move to Texas and be a, a manager, and a year after that, they offered me an opportunity to move to Europe and be a director, and then seven quarters after that is when I became the AVP and moved back to the West Coast, so there were a few locations in there.
1: That makes me want to ask, and this is kind of leading the witness. Do you have a consistency of taking on new challenges? And whether that's challenges across locations or industries, it's something that I've noticed with your background. When someone offered you a job in Europe or in Texas or in San Francisco, when you're living somewhere, did you hesitate or was it opportunity just so obvious that you just jumped at it?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, especially at that point in my career and that point in my life, it was all about the opportunity they could have said you know you could be the district manager of mars and i'm i'm there so it was all about the opportunity and just so happened that i speak spanish and the company was growing in europe and they needed a leader for uh, spain and portugal but it could have been lithuania
1: i would have gone yeah i feel the same way and it's it's good to be young and and have the flexibility to be able to do those things when we got acquired by palo alto networks they said hey we want you to go build out our enterprise team across the central us and I said great where's the central us like what are we talking here and they said well there's these 14 states this is going to be where the team would be built pick your state right and i was like okay well it's either texas or chicago right like there's really no in between and so i chose chicago And I was on the next flight out. I'd never been to Chicago. I didn't know a single person in Chicago. It was November when I was moving to Chicago, and I had no idea. It was about to be the coldest winter on the record of history in Chicago. So anyway, it was the best experience that I had, and I'm glad I just closed my eyes and jumped. Totally. So before I dive into kind of a few specific things, the topics that I wanted to make sure that we touched on today is the value of relationship building and making your go-to-market a competitive differentiator. Those are two things of many that I think we'll probably go through, but I think two things that I want to make sure we highlight, mainly because I think they're things that you're uniquely qualified to talk about, especially given your background. There's two pieces of your experience that I think are particularly interesting that I think are going to keep coming up. One is MongoDB, and the other is TripActions. So Mongo is an open-source company. It ipo at $1.2 billion. It now has a market cap of 11 billion, grew 50 to 60% year over year, and it's now at almost 400 million of ARR. I just wanna give the audience a sense of the scope of that growth. How many people were there in your org or at the company when you joined, when you left? Just give me a sense of that. When I joined, the
0: business was in the neighborhood of 30 ish million dollars in recurring revenue. I think the company was somewhere between three and 400 employees, and maybe 100-ish in sales, 100, 120. And then by the time we IPO'd, we were right around 1,000 people, and it was somewhere north of 300 in sales. And I'm guessing they're probably close to
1: 2,000 now. That's unbelievable. You were at a sales engagement platform. You worked for a database company, a virtualization company, an infrastructure company, Now you're at a travel management company. I mean, you don't give a crap what industry you're working in. It's actually unbelievable to see the success that you've had independent of industry. What do you attribute that to?
0: So I think the thing that I care about most or the things that I really think about when I think about my next opportunity is I want to put myself into a market that's large. I've been at companies that we're operating in a small market, and that just creates a whole bunch of challenges that you can't really do anything about. And so that's one thing I look for. And then I look for a solution that has genuine differentiation and differentiation that matters, that delivers real value to customers. And then the third thing is I look to associate myself with great teams. I think when you have those three things, when you have the market, when you have the differentiated solution. And when you have great execution, which is a proxy for the team, that's when you can get a magical outcome and you can have a great outcome with just two of those things. I'll give you an example. You know, you mentioned parametric technology, great company. And really what PTC had was a brilliant product and best in class execution. Sales organization was second to none. And the product was beautiful. The market was okay. CAD CAM was a $2 billion market. And nevertheless, PTC had an exceptional run, 10 solid years, 40 quarters of successive revenue growth and earnings growth, never missed a number for 10 years, ended up basically controlling 55% of that market, became more than a billion-dollar company in like 10, 11 years. But then what happens? When you're at 55% market share, it's really hard to grow 50% or 70% again. And so the addressable market definitely eventually put a decelerator on the company. I think, you know, I've been at other companies where the product was good. Was it perfect? No. Was it necessarily the best in every situation? No, but it was a good, healthy market and we had great sales execution. And as a result, we built a great company and had a great outcome, even though, you know, the product was just okay. When the cat's meow is when you have kick-ass product, a big market, And then you pair that with exceptional execution. That's when you can just run the tables and have a really beautiful outcome.
1: Obviously, all three is best. But if you had to prioritize them for me, what's the most important? What's the least important in your mind? Having seen it all.
0: That's a good question. Execution trumps everything because if the people are solid and the product's not right, well, the people will fix the product. If the people are great and the market's not that big, they'll pivot the company into a better market. So it all starts with people, especially in technology and what we do. So I would go
1: people, market, product. So for trip actions, I think the market is already giant. Like it's clear there's incumbents in this market. You're going after those folks. Maybe in other you know high-growing tech companies, maybe it was at Mongo, that market was either being created or developed as you were going. Are there any early tells of, This isn't quite the market that it's going to be, but we think it's going to be huge. Maybe the public cloud would be an obvious one, right? But I don't know. Are there any things that you look for like, man, this thing's just giant. This is going to be giant one day. It's going to be giant.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of times MongoDB would be a good example. You're playing into a large market, but the prospects don't view it as all one market. They view it as certain niches. And over time it becomes one market. So database would be an example. In the early days, uh in my early days at MongoDB, customers viewed NoSQL as a very distinct subset of the database market. And the database market was and is huge. NoSQL back then was very small. And there were basically a handful of vendors. There were stacks and Couchbase and Redis and MongoDB and a few others. Now, as the market's perspective and perception of these vendors, and, and in particular of MongoDB, has matured, and as the offering itself has matured, now the lines are completely blurred. But four or five, six years ago, a buyer would think very differently about a relational database workload versus a NoSQL database workload. Now they really think about just databases.
1: And then on point two, a solution that is genuinely differentiated. A lot of the time, it's hard to know what's under the hood of the car until you own it. How do you know if it's a genuinely differentiated solution? And maybe for trip actions, you would be the consumer. So you could just go on the app, you could use it, you could figure it out. Yeah. But maybe there is a database company that you would not be the consumer. Do you have a team of folks or people that you trust? How do you think about qualifying the technology?
0: 100%. I'm gonna answer that question in two parts. First of all, you have to rely on experts. When I was thinking about potentially leaving BMC and going to Dynamic Ops, Dynamic Ops was not even doing $2 million in revenue yet. And so I believed that cloud and hybrid clouds and public clouds was gonna be a big deal. I already believed that. And then I had to get myself comfortable that Dynamic Ops had a solution that could be successful there. And I'm not a technologist. And so I had to go to uh, somebody I trust. And I went to Sahir Azam. And he was one of the application engineers on the Logic team and at BMC. And I trusted him technically very, very much. And he took a hard look at dynamic ops and he came back and he said, yeah, this is the right way to solve the problem. The architecture is really solid. And a few months later, I joined and, and actually Sahir did too. And he did a great job there. And he's actually over at MongoDB now. Before I joined MongoDB, I went to a few people I know and respect in the industry who are developers or really close to developers. I went to Nand Malchandani, who I respect a lot, and Nand put me in touch with, you know, what he believes were the best developers he knew. And a few of them told me what they thought was great and what they thought the shortcomings of MongoDB were. And so I think especially when you're going into deep tech, you got to go find the experts. The other thing I look for, though, is that the differentiation is not at the feature level, but more at the architectural level. Because if it's at the architectural level, it's sustainable. If it's at the feature level, then you get into like an arms race and, you know, vendor A builds the feature and they lead frog and then vendor B matches it or comes up with another feature. And you're always in this like dogfight of who's got the latest feature. If it's architecture, you can't really change architecture very easily. In fact, companies really never do.
1: I love that. I've never thought about it that way. In that example of architecture versus feature, don't you think that in emerging markets, the first person out of the gate may have an architecture that's probably not the best one. And then other people can actually learn from some of the mistakes that they've made and then build a longer, more sustainable architecture based on some of the learnings of the trailblazer of that market.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Oftentimes the second product is actually better than the first. However, in terms of like the outcome and the rewards that people reap, I've seen a few examples where the first product wasn't the best, but it won or it got the biggest outcome. I'll give you two examples. In the single sign-on space, there was this company called Nitegrity, and they had a really good product. And then I was at, arguably, the second or the third one out, Oblix. We had a better product, but Integrity won the space in that they had a better outcome because they just sewed up a lot of the market, and we weren't better enough to justify moving off of integrity. And so there was only so much of the market left. Now, when we duked it out head to head, we won more than we lost, but we just had a two or three year disadvantage. And then I'd say the same in server config automation. Opsware was first out and books could be written about who had the better product, the blade logic versus Opsware. In fact, I think Ben Horowitz wrote one. He did. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, you know, neither of those products was perfect. But the fact that Opsware had a first mover advantage, I think, played into the fact that they had a bigger financial outcome, though Blade Logic had a great outcome as well.
1: And I think that's not to say that you can't re your platform to make it better, but there's just a lot of technical debt associated with that. And it's going to take you a while to kind of crawl out of that hole.
0: You know, that re-architecture thing, people talk about it a lot and they do it never. That's been, <laughs> that's been my experience. It's just too hard. There's too hard because to re-architect means you're going to stop feature creation for that whole period of re-architecting. And then if you have any kind of advantage, you're going to lose it and the competitors are going to pass you. And so that decision becomes really, really hard to make. And, I'm sure there are examples out there of companies that have done it, but it's pretty rare.
1: Oh, it's interesting to hear that perspective because kind of the ethos around building these companies in Silicon Valley is move fast, break things, right? All, all these things about really going quickly, yeah. putting band-aids on all of these solutions in order to just deliver the product. And then, hey, we can worry about all the other stuff later. I think your point is, look, if you don't build from the ground up with a really thoughtful architecture, you're missing something around a unique differentiator that you could go to market with eventually
0: yeah I think the way I'd see it is this whole concept of like move fast and break things. I think that really makes sense at the feature level, at the layer of the interface layer. When you're talking about architecture, you really kind of got to get it right up front. otherwise, you paint yourself into a corner. You know, Friendster, if you remember Friendster, that was a really cool idea, but they fell down because they just didn't have the right infrastructure, and Facebook came along a few years later. and it obviously became a super successful company. So architecture matters. And I think it is important to get it right up front. As a sales professional, I don't think you wanna be around at a company during the period of re-architecting the solution, because that's gonna be a period of very low innovation, difficult to sell, where all the focus and all the energy is on engineering, and it's
1: probably not a fun place to be as a sales professional. Definitely. Let's touch on trip actions. I guess at a high level, you're disrupting the corporate travel industry. I mean, look, really, you've been the darling of Silicon Valley. I mean, it's been an unbelievable run. In four years, TripAction has achieved a $4 billion valuation. I'm laughing because it's just ludicrous speed. In May of 2018, I looked on LinkedIn, May of 2018. So this time, two years ago, there was 161 employees. There is now 900. (laughs) 900. I mean, that is absolutely You raised $250 million Series D from Andreessen, I believe it was. That's right. And then Lightspeed was previously in the round. So that was June of last year. You guys have plenty of dry powder. 5X year-over-year growth. How many people are in your org now? Could you tell us a little bit more about what TripActions does? And then I think there's a clear dovetail into what's going on these days.
0: Yeah, sure. So basically, TripActions is a next-generation unified travel and expense management solution. So what's out there, the legacy is you've got travel management companies like Amex Travel and Carlson Wagonley and BCD. And those are the three big ones. And then there's a long tail of hundreds of others. So you've got these basically travel agencies and that business model has been around since probably the 50s. And then you've got online booking tools like Concur, Concur, Is probably the one people have heard about the most. There's another one called Get There and many others. And then you've got payment solutions, things like American Express credit cards or Visa or MasterCard. And then you've got expense management solutions like, again, Concur or Expensify or others. And the problem is that all four of these categories and companies have different incentives and different ways of solving the problem. The travel agency is essentially a people business and it's really based on agents. The online booking tool is a software solution that's trying to connect to these travel agencies. And then a payment solution is really a bank, it's a credit card. And then the expense management is probably another software solution. What we have done is taken those four categories and collapsed them into one solution that offers best in class experience for really for every constituent that matters, for travelers, so there's an app, it's a mobile app, it's chat enabled, it's got AI, it's, there's also a web app. And essentially what ends up happening is you can book a trip in six minutes, you can change a trip with your left thumb over chat, chat that's predictive, that figures out what you're trying to do. And so as a result, the user experience and ultimately the productivity of travelers is extremely high. So people become fanatics pretty quickly after they use trip actions. The next constituency that benefits is the admins, whether those are travel admins or finance admins who are trying to review expenses and whatnot. Because it's one integrated solution, you're not like waiting for your travel agency to give you a report at the end of the month and then getting a separate report from the after-hour service and then waiting for expense reports to get submitted over the next three months. And then it's four or five months later after six people spend a bunch of time massaging the data so they can generate a Tableau report, it's only then that you can really find out what you spent on travel four months ago. We're giving companies, admins, real-time visibility. With real-time visibility now, what you get is the ability to drive behavior in real time. So as an example, incentivize travelers to select offerings, be they air or hotel or what have you, that save the company money and give an incentive to the traveler to do that or leverage a vast array of inventory so that because we're a technology company, we're not a traditional travel agent. The travel agencies have typically a connection to something called a GDS like Sabre or Amadeus, and that's where they source all their inventory. Well, we have those. In fact, we have multiple of those. But beyond that, We also have direct connections with multiple suppliers. So many times a supplier, Southwest Airlines, might offer a weekend getaway fare that's much better than what any company has negotiated, and we'll leverage that through these direct connections. And then furthermore, we also have integration with the major consumer sites like Expedia and Booking and Priceline. And so we curate all of that inventory so that there's just more to pick from and the traveler gets more choice, the company gets more savings and actually the suppliers benefit because it gives them a better opportunity to showcase their inventory and to differentiate themselves against other suppliers. And so ultimately what we have is a new, better way to manage really the second biggest expense that most companies have. It's payroll and then it's travel and then oftentimes real estate is third. And so we're disrupting that market by providing something that is better than each of those four piece parts. But the real value is when you think about the totality of managing everything from travel all the way through to expense and reconciliation.
1: Now travel, like it's an uh, interesting time to be in any travel business. You know, you started in January, travel was basically shut off in February or March, right? It was when yeah. that started to trickle off. How are things going at Trip actions? How are you guys responding? Hopefully by the time this episode airs, people will be back in the air. But, you know, how's morale? Like, I just love to hear what's going on there.
0: Yeah, well, a lot's going on and then there's some stuff that's not going on. What's not going on is travel. Nobody's <laughs> traveling. And that is both a challenge and an opportunity. It's a challenge in that our revenues are based on booking fees. And so if nobody's traveling, nobody's generating booking fees, and therefore our revenue is severely impacted. The good news is, as you mentioned, we're, we've raised a lot of money, we've got a lot of cash, and therefore we have significant staying power, even if this travel freeze ends up lasting longer than anyone hopes or expects. But Revenue is severely impacted you know, in the present. However, there's some real opportunities here. So when companies begin to travel again, first of all, it's not going to be like flipping on a light switch where, hey, the virus is gone, everything's back to normal, and we just resume everything the way it used to be. It's going to be gradual. There are going to be cities that are safe and cities that are not so safe. There are going to be trips that are important enough to justify travel and trips that maybe we can, we can do them over Zoom. And so companies will need a smarter way to manage travel, especially through that transition. And so because we're a technology company, because we're well-funded, because we have the resources and the people and the capabilities, we are releasing new capabilities at an incredible pace. For instance, we've integrated our duty of care, the ability to know where your travelers, where your employees are physically located. We've integrated that with our policy management capabilities and we're taking in information from World Health Organization and CDC around infection rates and mortality rates so that now companies using trip actions can make travel policy decisions that consider the business criticality with the risks associated with the city payer. And those resolve dynamically because obviously it's a changing situation and You know, today Italy is dangerous, but maybe two months from now, Italy is safe and, you know, St. Louis, Missouri is a hot spot. I hope not, but potentially. And so, what we're doing is we're bringing to market capabilities that are very much in line with the way that companies want and, frankly, need to manage travel in the near future. Then, kind of looking past this transition period to whatever the new normal is, I think we can all agree that there's a good chance we're going to be in a recession or worse. And so in a recession, managing costs is more important than ever. And what we offer is goes back to that great user experience. Because the user experience is so compelling, there's no pushback from travelers to actually use it. Because you have the adoption, now you have the ability to enforce policies in a real-time way, in a proactive way, and further drive down costs. So we're well-positioned to emerge from this difficult period in a better position Objectively, independently, but certainly relative to the other vendors out there, which are really, you know, they're anchored in the old way in this disjointed TMC versus OBT versus expense management paradigm. I was in New York during 9-11 and I saw what happened in IT where companies all of a sudden had to think what happens if there's a disaster and my data center has gone. And AWS, Amazon, really rose to the occasion with an offering that was a great alternative to building a second data center, which can cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And AWS matured their offerings, they matured their message, and they really rose to what the market needed at that moment. I'm convinced that this is our Amazon moment, and we're going to emerge as the leader of the space coming out of this period.
1: Yeah, I mean, your CEO, I was reading an interview, the transcription of an interview that he gave, and the interviewee said, look, what do you do now? He said, well, when there's zero revenue, your focus becomes really clear. Like I'm a product oriented person. We're going to focus on the product. The silver lining for us here is that we're going to make this product really good. And this is an opportunity for us to respond to what the market's going to need and look like in the next 10 to 20 years. And being able to take what we see now as a nimble technology company and apply all the brainpower that we have to kind of the next decade of travel and what that might look like. And maybe it's not just travel. Maybe it's a smarter way to your point of managing expenses and costs. He said, this is a great opportunity for us.
0: Yeah. Just a couple other things I'll add to that. You know, it is absolutely an opportunity for us to really double down on product innovation It's also an opportunity for us to double down on our internal processes and mature how we operate as a company, how we enable, how we just manage the business. When you have a company that grew as quickly as we did, you can imagine that there are processes and tools internally that we need that we just hadn't built yet. This gives us an opportunity to kind of catch our breath. And I'll give you an example. During this period, we used to compensate salespeople to a large measure based on the adoption or the bookings revenue that our customers would
1: generate. Their quota was tied to bookings.
0: Exactly. And so now in the current scenario, we're actually paying and comping on acquiring new customers, getting them to sign, getting them ready to launch, even though they may not launch for a few months or, you know, who knows, even later in the year or even next year, that's okay. So we have the ability to, again, seize the moment and reorient how the sales organization is paid and what they're focused on and reorient them around signing up new customers and getting those customers ready to launch. And what we're finding is in a lot of these accounts, because the travel team isn't so busy right now because people aren't traveling, it's actually the perfect time. They have the bandwidth to really think about how they want their travel program to look in the future. So it really is a, a, an interesting time for us.
1: Yeah, and, and look, compensation drives behavior. And in that same interview, not to make this a trip actions commercial, but in that same interview, your CEO said, we've had the most signups we've ever had recently. And yeah. we signed up the largest customer we've ever signed up. And it's a testament to the power of adaptability, I guess. Yeah. So topic one that I want to uh, touch on here is the value of relationship building. And I think there's a strong correlation between meeting people in person, building a relationship. The way that I define relationship building and, and what that means is building rapport and trust with someone and usually doing that pretty quickly. How do you think of relationship building as a whole? And then I really want to dive deep into this.
0: Yeah, mixed thoughts on this topic. I think there is a risk. There's a danger to sales leaders over-indexing on relationship building skills when they think about the ideal salesperson they want to bring on board. There are very charismatic, very magnanimous. Think about, you know, the the great storyteller who always, you know, knows exactly what to say and is really fun to be around. That's great. But that in and of itself does not make a great salesperson. What Makes a great salesperson, or one of the things that makes a great salesperson is being able to understand what a customer's or a prospect's challenges are, what their goals are for the future. And then through that understanding, being able to influence or guide that customer in how they conceive of their requirements so that ultimately that salesperson can present a solution that meets their requirements, and is better than the alternatives that the prospect has available to them. Being a great relationship builder makes that easier. Great relationship builders often have a lot of empathy. They have genuine curiosity, and that makes that exchange of information, that discovery process, work much better. But I do think there's a misnomer out there in the industry of saying, Oh, like Johnny is a relationship salesperson. And Susie is, I don't know what the analog is, but I think great salespeople are great at discovery. They genuinely care about their customer and their customer's business. And they present a solution that meets their customer's requirements. And that may or may not be in the context of a friendship that has developed between the seller and the buyer. I think Nothing wrong with that. In fact, maybe it's icing on the cake, but it's not a prerequisite.
1: So let me ask you this way. Do you think relationships matter? Do you think if you're in the middle of a sales campaign, if you're just starting a sales campaign and you want to get into an account that you can't quite get into, do you think there is a time and place where a relationship actually matters?
0: I think they matter a little bit and they have a very short shelf life. Here's what I mean. I don't know about you. I have, I don't know, 15 people I would call friends, maybe 20, and five of them that I would say are close friends. So nobody has hundreds and hundreds of friends. And so a salesperson that quote unquote has relationships, that has a Rolodex, really what that means is that that person can get a handful of first meetings, which is great, but then where do you go? And so sure, it's better than calling in completely cold into an account to have that first meeting, that warm intro, but That's all it is. And so I think what really distinguishes superstars from others is that genuine curiosity, that empathy and the drive to work really hard to go and figure out what's going on in this account. And that's why you see exceptional salespeople move from one industry to another where their relationships are irrelevant or from one city to another where they don't have relationships and they can be successful over and over and over again. The skills matter a lot more than the relationships, though, not to say that the relationships are bad. Let me add something to that. Everything I just said is true in a scenario where you're selling a differentiated product. If you're selling a commodity, take everything I just said and throw it out the window. Because if from the customer's perspective, I can buy product X or I can buy product Y and they have the same specs, and let's just assume for this example that they have the same price, then all things being equal, If I like Juban and I don't like Tom, I'm going to buy from Juban because it's just more fun to be around. So in a commodity environment, relationships do matter. I guess I don't really think about it because I haven't spent much of my career selling commodities.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think the truth of it is that most people are in the like very little differentiation camp, right? I mean, it's very hard to be in a position where you can have the companies that are unbelievably differentiated. And so... That's interesting. I guess a follow-up question to that. You work for a travel company, right? Yeah. And what? one of the big reasons why people travel is to build relationships or rapport. Do you think it helps to be in person to build a relationship? 100%.
0: Yeah. I've been staring at the Zoom screen for about the last nine weeks. And you know, an in-person meeting... The exchange of information is so much richer. You get the body language, you get the facial expressions, you see so much more, you appreciate so much more. And so rapport is important. What I would say is that a face-to-face meeting, the exchange of information is just much richer beyond the rapport, which is definitely something part of it. It's just the ability to discover and the ability to educate is so much more when you can use inflection and body language and read the room and know when you're losing people, they're starting to stare at their phone and are okay, I should shut up and talk about something else. You don't know that over Zoom.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a time and place for everything, right? Some of the best reps I've ever seen, the opportunity to have a meeting over Zoom and in person, a lot of the time, the same sets of information may or may not be exchanged. But what I see with the reps, they're exceptional at those relationships at the right times is they'll take someone out for drinks or dinner and they'll start to scratch away at a lot of the data and the information that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get when you're sitting in a room with 15 other people.
0: You know what else happens at that time in those meetings, you know, when you're out for dinner or drinks or whatever is it's an environment where it's more conducive to the salesperson understanding the personal win of the individual. Because there's always like what's good for the company and the value prop for the company. But at the end of the day, we're trying to build champions to drive a deal. And champions, there's a big part of it where there's something in it for them as individuals. And oftentimes it's because they want to deliver a valuable solution to their company to maybe get a promotion or get recognition internally or whatever it is, so getting at what is my champion or my prospective champion's personal win, it's a lot easier to do in a personal interaction where you can start talking about you know career and family and life versus features and, and other capabilities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it's changed with access to information? and what I mean by that is like if you're a buyer, I don't know, there's some statistics that I don't know off the top of my head, but they have it's like 80% of their decision is already made before they've ever met with Jubin or Carlos. And so in this world where you have so much access to information, it becomes less about the salesperson educating you on their product because a lot of the time they might know the product better than you do, right? And it's more about, as you said, helping guide them to the solution that they want to achieve or the end state that they want to achieve. How do you think about that? Do you think it's changed?
0: Yeah, I think the bar is higher for salespeople. It used to be that, a prospect needed the salesperson in order to learn about the product. And I have no other way, unless I use the product at my last company, I have no other way to find out about your company or about your product. And that gave the salesperson leverage, where the salesperson could trade information for, let's say, access. Okay, I'll show you a demonstration, but you have to bring your boss. And now I have access one level higher in the organization, and I used you know the demo as the way to get it. Nowadays, you're right. Information is much more readily available. However, salespeople still need to discover what's going on in the account, what their challenges are, what they want to get to so that they can influence the requirements. And so what that means is that salespeople more than ever have to be really good at discovery. They have to have that genuine curiosity and empathy to ask the smart questions that get to the reality of what's going on. And really help the customer frame up how they're thinking about their problem in a way that tees up the opportunity to then present the solution that really fits what they're looking for or what they need.
1: And what about relationships internally? You mean
0: within the company? Within yeah,
1: maybe exactly within the company. I'll qualify the question. So at TripActions. I assume you guys have a BDR team that does a lot of the prospecting. You have a mid-market team, most of which may be within a specific office. And then you have an enterprise team that focuses on the larger accounts that may be geographically closer to those accounts. Is that right?
0: Yeah, more or less. Yep.
1: So now there's no office. Everyone's independent at their home, whatever. There's no traveling. Do you think relationships matter internally? Like, is there a time and place for the mid-market team to all be together? And is there actual value in that? Or are they equally as productive and efficient all working from home right now?
0: No, it, it matters a lot. If you asked me to put a number on it, I'd say at least 30 to 40% productivity hit. You know, I'll just speak from a personal perspective. When we went from working in the office to work from home, I thought, man, that sucks. And there's all these things that are not gonna be great. But I thought, well, one good thing is, my commute. It's like an hour each way. I'm going to get two hours back. I'm going to be more consistent about getting on the Peloton in the morning. That turned out to be completely wrong. (laughs) I'm actually working more hours, but I definitely feel like I'm getting less done because, again, the exchange of information over technology is just not as rich as it is when you're in person. There's no hallway conversation. There's no like, Oh, we happen to be going in the bathroom at the same time. Let's have this three minute or there's no like I've got this very important question that is really burning. I'm just going to walk over, ask somebody to put themselves on mute, ask the question, get my answer and get out of the way. Now it's like, well, let me find a slot on their calendar and you can't really set it for less than 30 minutes. So now it's 30. You know what I mean? So there's there's a lot of inefficiency built into trying to do everything through technology and Personally, I can't wait to get back in the office and just feel the energy. You know, sales is a hard job. It's, and, and especially when you're talking about things like prospecting and pipeline generation, you get a lot of no's between the yeses. And so, feeding off the energy of other people on the team who are seeing success is often what gets somebody through. 30 no's to that 31st call that's a yes.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like, I think a lot happens through osmosis. Like, to the example of when you go for an in person meeting, a lot of the really valuable exchanges that happen are outside of that meeting. I I think of it really similarly with internal salespeople as well.
0: Yeah. You're in the lobby waiting to go in for your meeting, and there's a poster there that's got the company's values on it, and you read it, and now you know more about how the company is wired, and maybe. 10 meetings later, you're with the economic buyer and you reference the company's values in the deck that you present to the economic buyer. You would have never known that. It would have been really hard to know that without actually being in the
1: room. Couldn't agree more. I could spend probably another hour on just this topic, but I want to make sure we talk about making your go-to-market a competitive differentiator. So MongoDB, at least in my world, has a reputation as just being a unbelievably tight-knit sales process. It is tight. And, you know, you and I know some of the same people and Mongo's reputation precedes them. And I'm sure you've brought that same kind of rigor at Trip Action around being really tight around making sure that you have an incredible sales and go-to-market process that allows for repeatability over and over again. So you mentioned doubling down on internal processes earlier. What does making your go-to-market a competitive differentiator mean to you?
0: A lot of people often think of sales as art and they think of maybe engineering as science. And I think it's the exact opposite. I think at least when I look at engineering and I look at technologists, you know, it's like they see a connection between these two dots and they figure out a way to bridge the gap through technology. And it's super creative. And like, I think a great developer is an artist. And that's why you have these like 10X developers that just accomplish so much more and they do it very elegantly without a lot of code. And sales, I think, is really a science. It's about landing on the optimum way to do things and then standardizing and getting everyone to understand it and to be able to execute it and then innovate on top of that and keep moving the bar. But I think where the creativity and the personality really comes to life is in how you execute the specific steps in the process. But exactly what the process is, I think there is often a best way. And so optimizing how you go to market is a thing. I think if you do it right, then customers will recognize that, hey, I'm dealing with a sales professional or a sales organization that genuinely cares about my company and about our problems and is bringing us a solution that is precisely what we need. And therefore, I'm happy to pay a premium for it because I know my risk is very low of making a mistake. And so if a sales organization is able to do that over and over and over again, then the sales organization and how that organization goes to market itself becomes a differentiator, every bit as important as the product itself. I'd say another area is if the sales organization can become highly effective at going out into the marketplace and seeking out those individuals at the companies who are likely to care about the value that the company is bringing. And those individuals woke up one day and they had no plans to think about this problem. And a sales rep got to them through a cold call, got them to think about this problem. And all of a sudden, an opportunity was created and two, three, four months later, that opportunity turns into a transaction that benefits the selling company in the form of revenue, and it benefits the buying company in the form of value and solving a problem. That's magic, and that's like demand creation. When a sales organization has a differentiated product that delivers real value and becomes expert at demand creation, and then at converting that demand into value for the customer, and thus revenue for the company, that's nirvana. If you can do that, then the sales organization becomes a differentiator.
1: I feel like you're equating kind of the sales process to a science. How do you trickle down that science and ensure that the science is applied consistently over and over mm-hmm. again? Because I think yeah. it's one thing to actually know the science is another thing when you add 900 people to an organization in two years to make sure that that science is applied consistently. How do you think about that?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I actually don't think it trickles down. I think it ebbs down and up. So some best practices the leaders bring because they saw them work at other companies and they implement certain best practices. And many best practices come from the people actually doing the job. Hey, I found a better way to do this. Oh, really? Wow. Let's document it. Let's put a training around it and let's get everybody the benefit of this better way to do this. And so this operating cadence, this operating model evolves over time, both top down and bottom up. You know, how do you make sure it's consistent? It really comes from operating with as much transparency as possible. So measuring results, measuring what matters to borrow the title of the book, but really figuring out what are the key metrics that represent success, for a given role, they're they're gonna be different for various roles. What are those key metrics? And then let's measure them. And when we have outliers, either positive outliers or negative outliers, let's go and do the work to investigate why. If somebody is blowing it out, Let's figure out why. Is it something about their profile? Let's go hire more people like that. Is it something about what they know? Let's make sure everybody else knows it. Is it something about what they're doing? And then the same on the downside. If someone is struggling, let's go get to the root cause. Is it they don't know something? There's a skill they haven't developed. They're not trying hard enough. They're not set up for success in some other way. They don't have the right territory, whatever. First, you have to have transparency and then you have to have leadership that really cares and will do the work to investigate and diagnose the root cause for the over or under performance and then take appropriate actions. So once you have transparency, with that transparency, as I said, you can take smart decisions. One of the decisions you can take is then you can build training, you can build enablement that makes everyone successful. And so Really, nirvana is when you have the following. You have an organization that is attractive to high performers with high potential. You operate with transparency. You invest generously in the skills and the knowledge of everyone in the organization. And then you make decisions based on merit. So superstars like yourself get promoted quickly. And that in turn makes the organization even more appealing to new superstars. And you get this virtuous cycle, this virtuous flywheel of better and better and better people. Like I got to get into that company because they're going to train the hell out of me. I'm going to become better. I'm going to be recognized and get promoted. And it's going to be impactful on my career and ultimately on my life. That's kind of the beautiful thing that you want to create.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you think about that kind of career progression, that superstar becomes the first line manager. The reason they became that first line manager was because of all the things that they did then empowered them to go lead that team, which now they're embodying all the values that the organization stands for, which then will allow them to go hire all those A players. Well, they'll instill kind of that like that belief that, look, we want to empower you to bring your A game. And when you do bring it, we want to shine a spotlight on that to make the organization better. So I think when you talk about ebb and flow up and down, I thought that was really insightful. That's how you ebb up. And that's a really tricky thing to do in an organization. And I don't think that happens unless you have a really systematic career path to go up because the folks that are ebbing the organization up and making an actual decisive difference in what's going on have to get promoted forward in order to then empower that next set of salespeople to give you the opportunity when you're going from 1,000 to 2,000 employees to, again, then ebb up because at some point... Carlos isn't going to have all the answers to push down a really tight sales process if it's not built into the culture and the fabric of the company moving forward.
0: Yeah, 100%. You have to have a framework of transparency, accountability, enablement, and as a result, you can make meritocratic decisions. And you know, I look back on my career and the thing I'm most proud of is the positive impact that people have been able to have on their careers and ultimately their lives. And you know, MongoDB, again, as a great example, lots and lots of people got promoted and and lots of people got promoted multiple times. And they might have come in as individual contributors and they can leave, you know, ready to go be executives at the next company. And that's very rewarding on a personal level. And I think it's just a beautiful thing. Makes me feel good about what we do.
1: And it really is a virtuous cycle, right? Because when you find a market that's large, a solution that's differentiated, and an organization that has an exceptional execution, then all of a sudden you start to grow, which can then feed all of this career trajectory and really culture that comes with that.
0: You nailed it. You nailed it. When you have those three ingredients, you can be in hyper growth for a long time. And when you're in hyper growth, you see this career progression happening on a wholesale basis.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'm already on borrowed time with you. I want to ask one more question on the go-to-market stuff. Is there anything else that you think of outside of process that may be a go to market differentiator. And maybe I'll tee you up with one location. And I say that because Mongo has offices in Austin and New York City, not you know, outside of SF, and especially now, I think that's especially relevant. People are thinking, do I get out of the city? How does that work? Can I hire somewhere else where it's cheaper? Do you have any other thoughts on maybe location or maybe other differentiators in a go to market?
0: The most important differentiator, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of a sales leader or an executive, the most important differentiator is your ability to recruit, your ability to identify and attract star talent. The second most important thing is development, is having a really solid enablement program to get new people up to speed quickly, to continue to raise the bar on the people who are there. And then the third sort of priority is execution, how you do pipeline generation and qualification and all that. But it's definitely sort of third most important. On the topic of location, I absolutely believe that I don't believe in a decentralized like work from home kind of environment. I think it's just it's harder to learn. It's harder to stay motivated. So I do believe in having hubs. And I do believe that there are lots of great cities other than San Francisco, where there are lots of super talented people, where you can build. Uh, Austin, obviously, has been popular for, for the last decade or more. And now you're seeing a lot of companies set up shops in Salt Lake City. I'm, I'm seeing some Denver, some Chicago. So I think there's definitely something to these other locations, MongoDB being in New York. But there's no substitute, I think, for people being in the same room and, and sort of sharing the same challenges and lessons with each other
1: yeah i think that's a great place to wrap i uh i want another episode with you just on attracting and identifying star talent so you promise me in six months when the world has stopped freezing over that we get to do this again and talk a little bit more let's do it every one of these i do i wrap up with the same two questions the first one what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it
0: grit to me, I think the I think the classic definition is a combination of a strong connection with a goal and, importantly, a commitment or an ability to persevere through obstacles. So that's what it means. How do we apply it? We applaud the small victories. We applaud when people endeavor and kind of work through challenges, whether the challenge is learning our pitch or learning our demo or building a, a list for PG Tuesday or you know whatever it is. I think celebrating the small victories along the way helps people develop and find the grit in themselves. But I think mostly people sort of have it when they walk in. And it I think it's the single most important determinant of how successful salespeople are.
1: If someone wants to get a hold of you, Carlos, how can they, how should they, when you guys are hiring again? How do they get a hold of you?
0: Yeah, awesome. Thanks for the question. And we're we're hiring right now actually. So yeah, just hit me on LinkedIn, Carlos Delatore. type in De Delatore, D E L A T O R R E and Trip Actions and uh, you'll find me and just hit me on LinkedIn, I'll get right back to you or go to our career page tripactions.com.
1: Thanks so much for the time, man.
0: Awesome, Jubin. Thank you. That was fun.
1: Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter, at Jubin Mir, or shoot us an email, gtmg at KleinerPerkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.